All right, everyone. Welcome to the Toasty Kettle Podcast, where we help you connect with the past through food. My name is James. I'm your host, and today is episode 59. Before I dive into today's show, I wanted to talk briefly about last week's episodes. Here at Toasty Kettle, we are not a major production. I do all of the research, the writing, the recording, the editing, and posting all on my own. When I started the show, I made sure to invest in good equipment so that I can make this a quality production. Now, every once in a while, my inexperience shows through. So last week, I posted two episodes, one for the history of MREs and one about the history of the po' boy sandwich. Now, for some reason, it posted the same po' boy episode to both the MRE episode and the po' boy episode. So super shout out to my wife and number one fan for pointing that out. I removed the episodes and reposted them. So if you had difficulty listening to either of them, just go to the available episodes section wherever you get your podcasts and press play. Now, there are some podcast pod catchers, excuse me, out there that may not have updated. If for some reason you still have problems accessing those episodes, just shoot me a quick email at um, toastykettle at gmail.com and I'll make sure to get that updated. With that out of the way, I really want to thank y'all for listening in. When I first started the show, I had 16 listens during that month. So it was basically myself listening and my family. I just checked the numbers for September and I have 797 total listens for September. And that growth is incredible. It means that there are more people out there listening than just my family. So thank you so much for finding the show, for listening. Every month, I'm now seeing just these big jumps where I'm killing it over the last month. I'm hoping to break 1,000 listens for October. However, I can't make that goal by myself. The best way you can help me is to consider leaving a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It's one thing you can personally do to help my show continue to grow. And I'm super grateful for all of you spending time with me today and having patience while I work out some of these technical kinks. It really does mean a lot to me. So obviously this week's episode is a little bit delayed. I'm balancing a full-time job, a home remodel, and my wife and child as well. So podcast has been... A little hit and miss lately with trying to be on that consistent Thursday release. I should be through the bulk of that remodel, so I should be back to my weekly cadence here in the next week or two. So again, I appreciate the patience. With that out of the way, let's talk about Michelin stars. Now this episode comes as a result of a conversation at a family lunch this past week. Michelin stars came up and it was quickly asked, what is a Michelin star? I knew instantly I had to take a minute to discuss the history behind this legendary culinary achievement on today's show. So shout out to the Feller family for the inspiration behind this week's episode. I watch a lot of food shows where they have obviously discussed Michelin stars at length. I always thought it was weird that they shared a name with the tire company. And that led me to believe that Michelin stars were completely unrelated to the Michelin Tire Company. How is it that a tire company is involved in this major culinary achievement? 
However, that's not accurate at all. The same Michelin company we all know and love for producing producing Michelin tires had a brilliant idea once upon a time for the Michelin Guide. In the early 1900s, there weren't a lot of cars on the road in France. In fact, there were fewer than 3,000 cars on the road at that time. At that time, a car was very much considered a luxury. It was a solution to a problem that many people didn't need solved. They were content to stay around their town or village and didn't feel the need to travel. And if they did travel, a train could get them where they wanted to go just fine. The Michelin brothers, Edward and Andre, had an idea. If they could increase demand for cars, then they could in turn increase demand for tires and their business would boom. The Michelin Guide was born. The Michelin Guide was a booklet put together by the Michelin Brothers. The goal, again, was to hype hotels and restaurants throughout France. By ranking these businesses, they became a must-experience travel destination. The plan was a major success. They distributed 35,000 copies of this initial guide for free in the first year. Four years later, in 1904, the brothers launched a similar guide in Belgium. And over the next few years, the brothers got busy and released guides for Algeria and Tunisia, the Alps and Rhine, and that consisted of northern Italy, Switzerland, Bavaria, and the Netherlands. Uh, They released one for Germany, Spain, and Portugal, Ireland, and the British Isles, and one for the countries of the sun, which consisted of northern Africa, southern Italy, and Corsica. In 1909, an English version of the French guide was produced. During World War I, they stopped printing the Michelin Guide. And when the war concluded, the brothers began printing their guide and distributing it again for free. One day, Andre Michelin visited a tire merchant, and he noticed a copy of the guide was being used to prop up a workbench. The brothers felt that consumers would only respect what they paid for and decided to begin charging for the guide. They charged 750 francs, which was roughly $2.15 in 1922. That's the equivalent of roughly $30 today. Now, have you ever downloaded an app for free and then you were inundated with ads? Like, to the point where you couldn't even use the app. Often these apps will allow you to use the app ad-free if you pay something to the developer. When the Michelin brothers began charging for their guide, they made some notable enhancements. They grouped restaurants by category, they added hotels, and they removed ads. I thought that was interesting. It made me think of apps and how you pay to remove ads. If you wanted to go ad-free back in the 20s, all you had to do was pay for the guide. In 1926, the brothers made another enhancement to the guide. They decided they would rank restaurants based on a star system. The original system they unveiled has gone through some minor tweaks over the years, but it has largely remained the same. So the rankings are as follows. One star means it's a very good restaurant in its category. Two stars means it's excellent cooking and well worth the detour. Three stars means exceptional cuisine and well worth a special journey. In 1931, the cover of the guide was changed from a blue color to a red color, and it's remained the same ever since. During World War II, the brothers again suspended publication of the guide. In 1944, the Allied forces requested they reprint the 1939 guide to France. 
It was specially reprinted for military use because its maps were considered the best and most up-to-date. Publication of the guide resumed on May 16, 1945. So I thought that was interesting, how they were able to contribute to the war effort just because their maps were so good. In these early post-war years, there were major food shortages brought about from the war, and Michelin capped the star system at two stars for this reason. In 1974, the Guide to Britain was published for the first time since 1931, and 21 stars were awarded in that version. In 2005, Michelin published their first American Guide, which focused on New York. The Guide covered 500 restaurants in the New York area and 50 hotels in Manhattan. So now that we have talked about what a Michelin star is, we need to talk about the method behind awarding them. Michelin sends out a reviewer to various restaurants. The reviewer is anonymous. There's nothing that sets them apart from the average dining guest. Their meal is paid for by Michelin, never by the restaurant. What makes the Michelin Guide so fantastic is that Michelin goes to great lengths to ensure its inspectors remain completely anonymous. The company's top executives have never met an an inspector. Inspectors are told not to tell people in the life about what they do for work. Can't tell your parents, can't tell your wives, neighbors, friends, no one. Michelin also doesn't allow their inspectors to speak to journalists, obviously. Once a review is complete, it gets discussed openly in annual star meetings. The ranking is discussed, three stars, two stars, one star, or no stars. There's a tremendous anticipation in France each year when a new guide is published. For some, it's similar to the excitement that's felt by many about the Academy Awards. This guide is a big deal. In the 1960s, the French chef Paul Bocuse said, Michelin is the only guide that counts. It will literally put you on the map. Journalists and the public will debate for weeks who they think will be given a star and who might lose a star in that year's guide. For many chefs, receiving a star means they have made it. They've reached the pinnacle of their career. It's like winning the Super Bowl or taking home an Academy Award. It's recognition for all of the sacrifice, all of the blood, sweat, tears, all of the late nights, the early mornings, the weekends worked, and the missed holidays that chefs give to their careers. There's no doubt the award has tremendous prestige in the culinary world. It can put a restaurant on the map in a way that couldn't have happened any other way. However, with all of that said, some chefs don't want the star. In fact, when they have been awarded a star, a few chefs have gone so far as to ask Michelin to take the star back. We don't want it. Casa Julio received a star for a perfumed cuisine in 2009. The restaurant chef Julio Biosca felt that the award was granted to dishes that he didn't like, and it restricted his creativity. He tried to have the star removed. Finally, he decided to just discontinue the tasting menu that produced the star. Michelin finally removed the star in 2015. Uh, Peter Shum Nursery's Cafe in London also wanted their star removed. In 2011, Michelin awarded the restaurant a star. The chef's guide Jinjel received complaints from customers that expected formal dining. She pushed to have the star removed and ultimately closed the restaurant. Only a chef 
would possess enough passion and drama to reject such a prestigious award. I do see their point of view, though. If a star is awarded, the restaurant will often attract a different demographic in their patrons. Something stood out to me as I thought about this. I thought back to some of my earlier episodes, and one of those was my interview with Sobrino de Botin in Madrid, Spain. And this is a restaurant that's been continuously operating since the 1700s. It's incredible. And when I spoke with Antonio Gonzalez, he made sure to talk about how they love serving the public. They always leave a portion of the restaurant open, uh, free from reservations, so that the average person can just drop in and have a bite. When a restaurant is awarded a star, it puts expectations in the public's mind. They expect fine dining. They expect an experience worthy of the star. And reservations skyrocket. Many chefs want everyone to be able to taste their food, and that's why they got into the business in the first place. A star can dilute and distort that experience and become golden handcuffs that keep a chef from innovating and offering the type of experience that they want to offer. With all of that being said, it's still a tremendous honor, and it's still something that chefs aspire to in their careers. It's a big deal to get the star, and it means that your restaurant has done something to be recognized. And it's still an amazing award. Well, that's all I have for today's show. Next week, I'm going to continue this discussion on Michelin stars. We're going to talk about some of the most star-studded chefs in history and in the industry. And I'm also going to talk about the French kitchen and the history of French cuisine. As always, if you like what you heard, make sure you leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram at Toasty Kettle. That's where I post pictures of the vintage and family recipes that I'm cooking. Until next week.